Hello and welcome! I'm Duncan Rayburn and this is Unorthodoxy. And here we are at the third episode in my series on the Book of Job. And following all my talk on Job's literary status and taking it seriously and also opening up ourselves to a different mode of consciousness, I think it's time to dive into some of the early parts of the text itself. And as we begin to look at the text itself, I want to look at the question of the meaning of life, because I think this is part of the subtext of the book of Job. Or, well, maybe the question of the meaning of life is part of the subtext of life itself. It's possible to argue that underneath the whole thing is this question, what makes life meaningful, given that, as Job says, we are born into a world that is going to give us trouble. I am not entirely convinced, by the way, that I'm going to completely solve the question for you. In all likelihood, the question will remain a question, and maybe it should remain a question. Still, I think there's a clue in the book of Job, right at the beginning of the book, as to how we might begin to feel our way towards something like an answer to the question of what the meaning of life is. So early on in the first chapter of the book of Job, the very first thing that we learn about Job, apart from where he lives, is that he's a good guy. He never messes anything up. And you could say that he is seriously concerned with perfection, or rather with some sort of platonic form of goodness insofar as he can understand it and participate in it. But he's also pretty calm about it, and he doesn't feel the need to impose his ideals onto others at least to begin with. Uh, we'll see how that works in the rest of the book. But he, he fears God very clearly, and he turns away from evil. And he has a big family, many servants, and lots of possessions. This is all stuff that we learn very early on in the first chapter. The fact that Job's wealth is juxtaposed next to this rhapsody about how he's the greatest of all people in the East is an attempt to get to the, the reader, I think, to see a connection. Maybe Job's goodness and his success as a family man and a businessman are connected. There is an idea that a lot of people have that assumes that acts produce certain consequences within the moral sphere. Um, I'm calling this the act-consequence dialectic. You can find this idea echoed in Proverbs 10 verse 24 to 30 and Proverbs 11 verse 3 to 8. There you find that the wicked will get what they dread and that the good will get what they desire. The morally corrupt will get their eschatological comeuppance, so to speak, and the morally righteous will remain rooted in the ground. In Psalm 112 and, and Psalm 128, the same idea is found. And you can also see this idea in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 to 2. If you obey God, these passages seem to claim, then you have nothing to worry about. Blessing is pretty much guaranteed. Of course, Fairly soon into the book of Job, this causal act-consequence connection is thrown completely to the dogs of deconstruction. Correlation, we figure out soon enough, does not necessarily mean causation. You might be um, a lovely, solidly good human being, but this will not completely exempt you from having terrible things happen to you. However, very, very importantly, this does not mean that morality doesn't matter at all. I think that would be the kind of dialectical degeneration um, that you know, we, we should avoid in a way. Certainly living without any sense of virtue or without any sense of the moral universe is likely to get you into some fairly serious trouble at some point. Job is not in any simplistic fashion dismissing the moral universe, 
but is, I think, complicating it. The act-consequence structure of the moral universe is true, in a sense, but so is the idea that often life is messy, so the act-consequence structure does not account for everything. In fact, if we assume that our success in er any area of life is sufficient for us to assume that we have life figured out, we are really only setting ourselves up for a kind of severe despair. The next thing we learn in, in the first chapter of the book of Job is that Job's children love to party, so their dutiful dad is in the habit of making just-in-case sacrifices for his kids. If his kids have messed up, they're covered, so to speak, in the blood of lambs and other unfortunate animals. The fact that we are told that Job makes sacrifices can be interpreted in many ways, and I think, you know, if it, with our modern sensibilities, we might find this such a disgusting, primitive thing, but it has huge, huge significance, and I, I think we do really well not to overlook it. Even at the risk of glossing over some of the finer points of, of this pious display of butchery, I just want to point out a few things. First, Job is a genuinely good man, and this goodness, his piety, is linked to his religiosity. He performs sacrifices. Second, sacrifice is a powerful act of submission to something higher than the self, or at least higher than the ego consciousness of the self, um, which... I'm saying that knowing that there's a whole other discussion here that needs to happen, but um, for now that, that should do. Job doesn't see his goodness or the goodness of anything else in his life as being anything other than a massive gift. Nothing he has is deserved, and he knows it. And sacrifice is, before all other things, an act of acknowledging what the good folks of AA call a higher power. Put differently, sacrifice recognizes that what we have is dependent on what comes to us from beyond ourselves. Then the third and last thing I want to point out about sacrifice, at least for now, is this. Where there is sacrifice, there is a cost. Even the way that we use the word sacrifice these days implies that, that very idea. And that cost tends to make a victim out of some something. Sometimes the victim is, in some sense, uh, the one who makes the sacrifice. And, and what this points to, provisionally, uh, is that finding the meaning of life is going to involve some kind of cost to ourselves. This even explains, to some degree, what's up with Job's kids. <laughs> because Job's kids may be living it up in chapter 1, but there are at least a few animals that have to pay for Job's children and their wild lifestyle. And this is also, very notably, at Job's expense. So someone is paying the price, in a way, for these kids to have a fun time. To sacrifice is to end up with less than what you had to begin with. You lose something to gain something, or you lose something to recognize what has already been gained. One aspect of the significance of this idea, for me, is that Job himself is about to find himself at the in a kind of similar position to the animals that he's had on the altar under his knife. He is about to become a victim of sorts, a kind of plaything for the small s Satan character, and a rather careless-seeming god figure. Um, and why all of that, that is happening, we'll, we'll have to get to in a later episode. 
But the first two points that I've made um, are primary here. Job is a good guy, and part of his being a good guy is having a pretty potent sense of the transcendent. What this means is he's got a, a really strong sense of the spirit or power that is beyond the control of the self and to which the self owes pretty much everything. This may seem like a pretty obvious thing to point out, but it's an indication of something else that we should know about the book of Job. Job is referred to by scholars as didactic literature, which is a way of saying that we're dealing with literature that is supposed to teach us something about what it means to be in the world and to live in the world. And there's something about didactic literature that you should know, and it is this. The hero in any piece of didactic literature needs to be flawless. In fact, his flawlessness is almost more important than anyone else's flawlessness. Even in the book of Job, this becomes clear. Even God, in some ex to some extent. I know that sounds, again, very controversial, but um, it's so important for understanding what didactic literature is trying to do. If the hero isn't flawless, it's not didactic literature anymore, even if you happen to be learning something from it. Didactic literature tries, for the most part, to have a fairly uncomplicated narrative structure because it doesn't want the reader to be confused, especially when complex themes are introduced. So sometimes, for this reason, the didactic story can edge a little towards the naive, although it happens to be the case that Job subverts this trend. Um, one, of the, one of the main features of didactic literature is the happily ever after ending. Because the didactic tale is supposed to persuade us to emulate the righteous people in it. This happens to be true for a lot of fairy tales, as I'm sure you've just realized. But it is also true for other books in the Bible, and a key case in point here would be the story of Daniel. Daniel uh, is a key example of didactic literature. Daniel, the main character in that book, is a good guy who never messes up, and like Job, his piety is directly linked to his sense of the God beyond his own experience. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are also characters in the didactic tale of their own. Their story is uncomplicated, and they don't mess up. And they live happily ever after. By contrast, and just as an example, when we read about David in the Bible, we are not reading didactic literature in any sort of simplistic sense even though it is so very instructive. David screws up in remarkable ways. He is a man of great faith at times, but he, by our usual ethical standards, is actually a pretty nasty piece of work. He's a murderer, adulterer, and, among other things, one of the worst fathers to ever grace the pages of any holy book in mythology or history, not to mention just a shocking family man, uh, not particularly adept at being, you know, faithful to his many wives, even though he has so many of them. What is that about? So his story is really a mess, and, and the story doesn't exactly end happily ever after. David dies, leaving a pretty sordid mess behind him. The thing here is that David is not someone we're supposed to emulate. He's important for other reasons, and sure, at times he isn't nearly as bad as I've just made him out to be, but his occasional moral slippages mean that we're not going to learn from him the same that way that we're going to learn from a truly, consistently holy man. Not so with Job. 
Part of the meaning of the book is found in something Job repeats endlessly, which is that he is right. He is largely, in fact, unrepentant, although there is a kind of repentance that happens towards the end of the book, which is important not to overlook. Still, that repentance um, is not a repentance regarding good motives and intentions, but a kind of repentance that involves knowledge, which has to do more with how those intentions manifested themselves within the realm of insight, you could say. Job regrets not his moral desire and his moral focus, but the fact that he'd been ignorant. To put this more strongly, Job doesn't admit he is morally wrong, but that he'd spoken without understanding. This, by the way, is a really important distinction. Being wrong and being ignorant are not necessarily two halves of an equation. You can be right and still be ignorant of many things. I know this from experience, and I'm pretty sure that you do too. You can also be right about the main thing that you're you know, focused on, even if it turns out that you're wrong in some other more minor details. Being wrong in your understanding about some things does not mean that you have to repent of your having done something right, right? Well, I'm going to leave it to you um, to figure out if that is even a distinction worth making while I move on to more on the question of how this relates to the meaning of life. Anyway, so here's the call. Job is a good guy. And Job assumes that every good thing comes from beyond him. And this means that he sees his job as being to seek after the goodness beyond him. In fact, it's arguable that Job's rightness is less about his obsession with rule-keeping than it is about being uh, consistent in his intention to always seek to align himself with with God, with, with that which is beyond himself. And just for the record, the sense of goodness outside of himself is an abstraction. The meaning of Job's life is linked to the subjective engagement with this abstraction or this ideal. And it's highly plausible that someone else's view of the good is going to differ in some respects from his one. Of course, in keeping with their own subjectivity. One singular meaning of life can't necessarily be applied to everyone, although the abstract principle that I'm adopting here and which I'm going to explain now can be. So the issue of being right for Job is both external to himself and internal. The issue of participating in the good, both as a subjective principle and as an objective reality, is going to need to fit with all of us in some way. And yes, it needs both. When everything goes wrong, Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. That's, you know, those, that's her advice. You know, when you're going through hell, you might as well curse God and die. And of course, she has good reasons for saying this, um, because she has also lost everything. She's not the bad guy in the story just because she's angry. She's been hurt very, very badly, just like her husband, which is precisely why she tells Job to curse God and die. Her response is, however, limited to the fact that she has placed her higher good in lesser things. And their crumbling has meant that she has had little option but to crumble too. But Job doesn't do this. This is probably because to do this would be to eradicate the external confirmation of his internal intention. And in the process, he'd really be eradicating the meaning of his life too. 
When Job's friends pester Job on the matter of renouncing his own internal focus on how he's gotten things right, Job refuses to do this too, because once again, to do so would be to eradicate the internal confirmation of his externalized goal. And this, in turn, would eradicate his sense of the meaning of his life. For me, this is profoundly illuminating for what it tells us about human nature. Human beings need goals to live by. So, and, and particularly, I think, in some sense, one core, profound, um, transcendent goal, something beyond themselves to work towards. If there is any meaning to life, it must of necessity be, be about living towards something. And that something must, again of necessity, always be beyond the, the self and always, in some sense, unattainable. And I think this is a, a very strange thing to be recommending here, that actually the meaning of life must involve having a goal that is, in some sense, unattainable. What I mean is, is not that we can never reach the object that gives us meaning, but rather that we can never reach the end of it. So maybe a counterexample will help to explain what I mean. Let's say that you have understood the meaning of your life to be located in a single act of purchasing a coffee frappuccino from the Starbucks at 405 on Broadway in Manhattan, New York on the 24th of November 2017. That date, as, the as of the time of this recording, is fast approaching. Why anyone would have this as a whole goal to their existence is beyond me, but it's just an example, obviously. So even if you're not a New Yorker, there is a way to achieve this goal. The only trouble is that you may actually achieve the goal. You will have reached the end of it. And this would then mean that you have actually completed what you had perceived to be the act that marked the whole meaning of your life. Well, then now what? Well, Either you'd have to abandon life itself or find a new goal. If the goal is <laughs> kind of as pathetic as this one, well, then you're not really going to ever sense the gravity of your own existence. So let's take another possible goal. Perhaps you understand the meaning of your life as being bound up in acquiring a specific set of gifts and then growing those gifts for the sake of your family, community and the wider world. Well then, if this is your goal, growth is always possible, even if you become a master. And the other thing is that there are always people beyond you that could benefit from you having those gifts and having a, a, an interest in developing those gifts. And then you could always find ways to share those gifts of yours with others. Even if those others leave or die, there are other others who you could find to share those gifts with. If you're a builder, for instance, and you make houses for people, the issue is not, regarding the meaning of life, obviously, that you build this or that specific house, but that you become the kind of transformed individual who could continue to do this thing, building houses or whatever else you do, to contribute to the proliferation of goodness in the world. It costs you time and energy. You have to sacrifice something of yourself to be transformed into the kind of excellent self that can do this. But this is an adventure that you can continually participate in. It never has to end. Uh, the issue needs to be bigger than just, look at me, I build houses, but more along the lines of, look at me, this is what I do to make 
the world a better place for myself and others to live in. In fact, it's not just about what you do, but who you are, how your your inner sense of purpose is directly linked with an outer sense of purpose that is beyond yourself. Suddenly, if this is the kind of paradigm that you have, even the most menial thing in the world that you do might gain a kind of infinite significance. Even the smallest act of telling the truth or being kind or being courageous is going to then be a kind of moral earthquake that rather than destroying everything would actually kind of create something, would build um, things towards something more whole. Maybe this is sounding a little simplistic, but I found this stuff to be tremendously helpful to ponder. Job's meaning, his sense of pursuing goodness remains remarkably unshaken, even when he is thrown into grief, and even when his ideas about God are thrown into complete turmoil, and even when he no longer has the wealth to be able to sacrifice animals, even when life is hell for Job, he manages to cope, because the meaning of his life is still felt just as deeply by him as it as it was felt before. So even when he falls apart, he doesn't disintegrate completely. Because in some way, I think he is able to see outside of his suffering. He, he has the ability to look beyond it. This, by the way, is what an act consequence moral structure does not and will not and cannot allow. If you are caught up in this structure, you will constantly be stuck within a loop concerned with what is causing your suffering or what the effect of your suffering is. Why does your agony seem unbearable? Well, probably at least in part because you can only see your agony and not the wider world outside it. This is one of the reasons why I think that the Stoic principle of, of, of transience is so helpful because there's a sense in which seeing transience as, as intrinsically part of our experience of the world is to see that whatever suffering we happen to be going through is going to end in some way, form or fashion. This is what the why is this happening question reveals. And it is precisely the poverty of only having an act consequence moral structure that is shown up when someone actually tries to answer that question. There are people I know and love and respect who want to make one of the central messages of Christianity one about the end of meaning. Thank God, they say, as that very poor translation of the introduction of the book of Ecclesiastes says, thank God, they say, everything is meaningless. And then they tip their hat to Zizek's interpretation of the book of Job and to, to others. And, and they say to parody that uh, Elton John song that's quoted endlessly in the movie Moulin Rouge, how wonderful life is, now everything is meaningless. Well, my sense of human beings is that this really is the easy way out because it means that life has become entirely random and anything really is anything and everyone is everyone and as it is in a Rick and Morty universe, everything is interchangeable and infinite universes exist without any real purpose and nothing really matters as, you know, Freddie Mercury sings in Bohemian Rhapsody. That's easy to cope with in some sense because it makes no real demands of you. You can then be and do whatever you want and it won't matter. 
you have ultimately no real responsibilities to the bigger picture apart from pronouncing the death of God. And so you can get your Starbucks Frappuccino and then go to work like the little cog in a machine that you are. And Fight Club style, you can become the all-singing, all-dancing crap of the world. However, I think the book of Job resonates with us, not because the universe is meaningless, but because even with all the pain and suffering that we go through, we feel that it really is meaningful and that it must be meaningful. We want to know why terrible things happen precisely because we ache to acquire meaning. We have this will to meaning. We want everything to make sense, even when it doesn't. We're outraged by evil and suffering precisely because we are fiercely committed to goodness. We are cynical even sometimes because we have such high standards of what we should be obtaining or attaining. And so we feel strongly and profoundly that goodness needs to be restored. And even if this means, you know, making another kind of sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of our gods of meaninglessness. In any case, when people who have that very small sense of, you know, life's meaning, life life is something just to be lived in very small sort of bit bite sizes, those people, when they go through suffering, cope worse because there is no meaning, no larger picture towards which they can strive for. I mean, this is something that Viktor Frankl uh, demonstrates so amazingly in his writings. And, and I think it's, it's worth paying to people who have suffered greatly and who have overcome. Those people always find a larger sense of meaning that, that goes beyond mere nihilism. So I, I think it's helpful to pay attention to something Nietzsche uh, says. In his book, Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche says the most amazing thing. He says that he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. It's a really profound thing he's saying. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. This is how I interpret this, informed, of course, by the book of Job and also by others like Viktor Frankl. I think that when we have a clear sense of why we are here, what our lives are for, and what kind of transcendent goodness we are participating in, we can handle things that go wrong with far greater fortitude and even grace. I'm not saying in any way that we won't go through hell or that we won't be shaken to our core. We will go through terrible things and they will make us occasionally question everything. The trouble is that we tend to start asking the why question of the wrong things and at the wrong time. When things have fallen apart, it's actually too late and almost certainly futile to ask why. The why needs to be bigger than life's triumphs and failures. It needs to transcend emotional delights and emotional upheavals. Because then, when all hell is unleashed, we can bear it. The hell that is unleashed is the how that Nietzsche writes about, the why that Nietzsche talks about, is the thing outside of the momentary blips and blunders and bloopers and glitches of life. For Job, his God, Yahweh, is the horizon of his being, not the world he lives in. And his understanding is that God is not to be cursed, but worshipped. It's true that we may end up, as so many of us do, choosing a false God to worship, and that false God may provide us with some semblance of meaning, and that meaning may, like a kind of Heaven's Gate cult, demand our lives from us. And this is always what 
the gods demand, by the way. It, they always demand sacrifice. But there's a lesson to be learned even from worshipping the wrong thing, and it is this. We need something within us that reaches out to something beyond us. I'll say that again. We need something within us that reaches out to something beyond us. This is how we find the meaning in life. Nietzsche, for one, didn't, in, in my view at least, pick a very stable or lofty transcendent why. Um, he assumed his own isolation in a way that I think was ultimately detrimental for him. But his advice still remains incredibly pertinent. If you can find something beyond you to strive for, and something within you that feels like a solid, unshakable intention, unshakable even when everything else in your world is shaken, then the terrible hows of life, I think, can be bearable. This, by the way, is how I read the fact that throughout the book of Job, Job has absolutely no idea about what's been going on behind the scenes in the debate or the dialogue between God and the Satan character. Job is not privy to what it is that has caused him to suffer, and it doesn't really seem to matter very much. In some sense, this how doesn't really matter. Job's life can still have meaning and value because he remains committed to the purpose that he has already discovered for himself. This brings me to a fourth thing that I wanted to say about sacrifice, and it is this. Sacrifice is a ritual. Again, I'm stating the obvious here, but I think we are not on the whole in the modern world all that clued up on the profound vitality of rituals and the rhythm and structure that they give to our lives. In fact, I think the rituals that we participate in, even very private rituals like making tea at a specific time or taking a smoke break or organizing a date night with um, your husband or wife or, you know, brushing your teeth, these rituals are incredibly potent for creating a sense of the meaning of existence because meaning is not going to just be something that you live within your head. It has to be sensible and perceptible. Ritual also confirms the bridge between the good intention within us and the goal outside of us. Rituals like reading a poem or a scripture or meditating um, or, you know, going for a run, they help us to keep true to the rhythms of goodness and truth and beauty and unity in the world. Ritual marks a boundary and the boundary says, here you are, and you are not this thing that is happening to you, and you are going to outlast even this if it costs you your life. This commitment to ritual doesn't mean being overly rigid, by the way. <laughs> um, it just means giving life its own heartbeat or drumbeat. Rhythm can make even the most chaotic melodies seem ordered and intentional. Anyone who's written music will know that. Um, just have a solid rhythm and then just play random notes, and it's amazing how even the chaos can seem like it has its place. Even when things go wrong, structures can help us to, in fact, stay on track and stay stable. Which is why even something like not having a job can cause you to slide into de depression so quickly. Because what happens there, at least primarily, is that you lose rhythm. So find a rhythm, find rituals, even rituals you're already doing. Um, learn experientially how remarkably redemptive they can be. I've experienced a few terribly traumatic things in my life, and I have no doubt that more th terrible things are bound to come my way. 
And I'm certainly aware that others have gone through far worse than I have. So I'm, I'm not going to even begin to assume that I know everything there is to know on the subject of suffering. And I'm also pretty sure that some of, some of the things that could happen to me would utterly break me if I were to experience them. I don't think that anyone is immune to everything. This is part of what it means to be a finite human being within an infinite universe. If the actual losses and sufferings of Job were my sufferings, I, I have no doubt that I would crumble. But in my own struggles, I found that asking why the suffering is happening, that question just wasn't helpful. And even when I questioned whether there was or was not a God, again, I just found this very unhelpful. It does not help the pain when we treat the pain as if it is the new absolute or the new God against which all of life should be measured. And the trouble with, you know, being in the midst of, of turmoil is that the turmoil does tend to become a kind of new absolute um, if we're not careful. It just doesn't help to use the destabilizing event as the lens through which all of life should be viewed. But it definitely does help, I've found, to cling to something like Samwise Gamgee's advice from The Lord of the Rings, that there is always some goodness in the world, and it is worth fighting for. And this good that's worth fighting for is not just about our ideals, but about the steps we take, one foot in front of another, to reach those ideals. It does help to know that no matter how poorly we manage to live out our ideals, those ideals matter when they take on flesh and blood. Loving others, seeking harmony with others, seeking to participate in the healing of the world through you know, working towards our own healing and so on. The ideal is sometimes, maybe even always in some sort of Platonist fashion, more real than reality, more real than our hurt and our pain, but also more real than our pleasure and our elation. I think we also, you know, pain is a terrible philosophical problem, but pleasure is also a really difficult thing. You know, when good things happen to you, no, you, it's very unlikely that you ask, why is this happening to me? But bizarrely enough, I think it's it's also part of the same sort of problem. Why, why is anything happening to you? Why are you here at all? Um, but the thing that I'm basically talking about here is that the ideal that we strive for is something that will give our lives coherence um, when we act in the world. Uh, I'm very aware, of course, by now that I've gone through all of this, that this may all feel terribly insufficient for you because it really is insufficient. But the gist of what I'm saying is what I've managed to land on, uh, given a whole range of, of complexities and conundrums. The meaning of life is going to be found not just in a proposition, but in our entire posture towards being and reality. That's why Job doesn't completely, completely go and fall apart. He does fall apart a bit, but he still maintains some sense of focus because his meaning in his life is in his entire posture towards being and reality. The meaning of life is going to be less cognitive uh, then it is going to be a matter of how we live and breathe and act and have our being. We will have, I think, a better sense of how our lives matter when we have a clearer sense of what we're here for. And we'll have a clearer sense of what we're here for when we have a clearer internal core that offers us uh, a connection with that intention. And, and then we'll have a clear sense of a transcendent goal that, that doesn't disappear once we happen to have attained some part of it. 
as for the rest, I think everyone has to find their own meaning, not in the Nietzschean sense that we need to make our own meaning, but rather that we're going to all need to figure out what it means to participate in the goodness um, that exists within ourselves and also the goodness that is beyond ourselves. It's a journey, but the journey is itself a kind of destination. And I hope that this, you know, everything that I've shared with you here has at least some kind of fuel uh, to fire your, your own thinking, um, especially about how you see the meaning of life, because I have no doubt that you have so much to offer on this subject that I haven't even begun to cover. And maybe it'll help to think about this question of the meaning of life for a while longer. So in a way, that's part of what I'm going to be doing throughout the rest of the series. I'm grappling with this sort of subtext question from different angles, even if I don't happen to bring the question up directly in a future episode. But what I do think is helpful here is is to dwell on what happens specifically when we encounter chaos. And so that's the question that I'm going to be looking at in the next episode. I want to look at what Job has to tell us about chaos and order, but specifically what it has to do with dragons and many-eyed gods. So I really hope you will join me for that. I think it's going to be fun and interesting. And But thank you so much for listening to this episode. Again, if you want to support this podcast on Patreon, you are very welcome to do that. I, I would appreciate it. And share this uh, podcast with anyone who you think will benefit from it. Until next time, cheers, everyone.